Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It's Wednesday, June 1st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a new contender for the world's largest plant is bigger than Cincinnati and named after Poseidon. Plus, a roundup of everything launching into space this weekend. And fresh on the heels of the new Boz Lerman biopic, the company that owns Elvis's likeness is trying to shut down all the Elvis-themed wedding chapels in Vegas. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. The world's largest plant has been discovered, and it is a 4,500-year-old self-cloning underwater seagrass the size of Cincinnati and dubbed Poseidon's Ribbon Weed. I mean, it really didn't have to go so hard. Being the biggest would have been cool enough. Now, we've known that meadows of this seagrass, formerly called Posidonia australis, have long carpeted the ocean floor in Shark Bay, off the western tip of Australia. But until a recent DNA analysis, led by Jane Edgelow and published this week in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B, we didn't know that a lot of what we thought were different plants were in fact one giant singular plant. 77 square miles of one plant. And not only that, but some bits of the seagrass that aren't connected due to severed roots are still genetically identical to one another, suggesting that they were once part of the whole. The researchers from the University of Western Australia wrote in the conversation yesterday, quote, We collected shoot samples from 10 seagrass meadows from across Shark Bay, in waters where the salt levels range from normal ocean salinity to almost twice as salty. And in all samples, we studied 18,000 genetic markers to show that 200 square kilometers of ribbonweed meadows expanded from a single colonizing seedling, end quote. And from the New York Times, in addition to being a clone, the grass seems to be a hybrid of two species and possesses two complete sets of chromosomes, a condition called polyploidy. While polyploidy can be lethal for animal embryos, it can be harmless or even helpful in plants. However, it can result in sterility. Much of the clonal grass does not flower and can only reproduce by continuing to clone itself. This combination of extra genes and cloning might have been the key to the grass's survival during a period of ancient climate change. Cloning made production easier because the grass did not have to bother finding a mate. The extra genes could have given the seagrass the ability to cope with a broad range of conditions, which is a great thing in climate change, said co-author Elizabeth Sinclair. End quote. But whether it will be able to weather the current climate crisis remains to be seen. In fact, the Shark Bay Posidonia was itself harmed by a heat wave in 2010 and 2011, but it's recovered with an increased number of shoots and leaf density, according to Sinclair. And that in itself is a bit surprising, since adaptation is usually best achieved in these circumstances through sexual reproduction. 
Even though a few flowers have been observed in this meadow hinting at sexual activity, the main plant is mostly sterile, as again most polyploidy plants are. Less sexual reproduction means less genetic diversity, hence plants that sexually reproduce have more adaptability. Now, it might be that this Posidonia australis, the researchers hypothesize, has a few genetic mutations that give it key advantages. And figuring out this conundrum, why exactly this particular seagrass has proven so resilient over the millennia, through changes in the climate and in a very high-light location that's usually stressful for seagrass, will be one practical takeaway from this and subsequent studies that could help inform how other species are able to survive our changing climate. Now, as for Shark Bay's Poseidon Ribbonweed's competitors for the title of world's largest living organism, quoting again from the Times, Utah's Pando, a clonal colony of 40,000 aspen trees connected by their roots, is the reigning largest individual plant, covering an area bigger than 80 football fields. The humongous fungus is even bigger, weaving a web of mycelial tendrils underground and beneath tree bark across three and a half square miles of Oregon's Malheur National Forest. By comparison, the Shark Bay clonal seagrass is 77 square miles. End quote. And there is another massive seagrass plant in the Mediterranean called Posidonia oceanica. While quite a bit smaller than Posidonia australis at just 15 kilometers or about 10 miles, it could be much older, possibly 100,000 years old. Dang, that is some old grass. But can we also talk about how great the name humongous fungus is? The humongous fungus was previously the reigning champion for world's largest living organism, and I'm not sure how official these things get or when the new champion gets coronated. Does a Guinness World Record holder need to go snorkeling in Shark Bay with their clipboard and a meter stick to measure out Poseidon's ribbon weed? I assume that is exactly what will be happening sometime this summer. Space is going to get a lot more crowded after this weekend. First up, Friday morning, an unpiloted Russian cargo spacecraft will be taking up food, fuel, and supplies to the crew on the International Space Station. And then Blue Origin is vaulting their next crew of tourists up to the edge of space on Saturday the 4th. And later that day, China's Shenzhou-14 spacecraft will be ferrying a third crew to the nation's Tiangong Space Station. And while it won't be launching, early Monday morning, NASA will once again be attempting a wet dress rehearsal of the Space Launch System, or SLS, the mega launch vehicle that will one day, eventually, hopefully, be used for the Artemis missions to the moon. So, lots happening up beyond the atmosphere this weekend. A few fun tidbits. That Blue Origin flight, the fifth crewed mission and 21st overall for the company, will include science communicator Katya Echezareta, who will become the first Mexican-born woman to reach space. The Chinese astronauts, meanwhile, will be spending much longer in space than the Blue Origin tourists. They will be spending six months aboard the Tiangong Space Station, which is still in the process of being assembled. And they will actually start in the Tianhe core module and will be there to receive two new modules, Wantian and Mengtian, later this summer and fall. And those two modules will mark the completion of the Chinese space station. 
Now, as for that wet dress rehearsal of the SLS, here is how NASA describes it, quote, The rehearsal is the final test needed before launch and calls for NASA to load propellant into the rocket's tanks, conduct a full launch countdown, demonstrate the ability to recycle the countdown clock, and drain the tanks to practice the timelines and procedures that will be used for launch. End quote. The rehearsal was originally scheduled for April 16th, but the SLS was rolled back from the launch pad at the last minute when it became clear it needed further adjustments. This coming Monday will actually mark the fourth attempt at a wet dress rehearsal. The first two attempts were thwarted by pressure and valve issues. But if all goes well on Monday, we could be looking at a July or August launch of the Orion spacecraft for Artemis 1, which will orbit around and beyond the moon on a kind of reconnaissance for the Artemis 2 lunar flyby mission with astronauts in tow. And that Artemis 1 mission is also the one that will take up those brewer's yeast samples that I mentioned last week. That mission could also line up closely with the first orbital launch of SpaceX's Starship, the tallest and most powerful rocket ever built a lander variant of which is slated to one day be used for the Artemis 3 mission. Artemis 3 will be the first landing of humans on the moon since 1972. That won't be happening until 2025 at least, however. And right now, the current delay with testing Starship is coming from the Federal Aviation Administration, who were supposed to have completed a final environmental assessment of Starship yesterday. Their new deadline is June 13th. And there's no guarantee that SpaceX will be issued a license after the environmental assessment is complete. This assessment is particularly in regard to their launch pad in Boca Chica, Texas, and nearby residents have raised concerns about the impact of rocket launches and are asking that the number per year be limited. Meanwhile, Elon Musk has said that were this issue to drag on, they could launch Starship from Cape Canaveral in Florida, where they already have all the approvals that they need for launches, but moving the entire operation to Florida would set it back six to eight months. I mean, to give you an idea of how tough it is to transport a launch vehicle, just getting the SLS from the vehicle assembly building to the launch pad requires, quoting interesting engineering, NASA's 2.9 million kilogram crawler transporter 2 vehicle to carry SLS 4.4 miles at a speed of less than one mile per hour to the launch pad, end quote. It takes a heck of a lot of time, logistics, and money. So maybe don't hold your breath for the SLS or Starship launches happening in August. But in other space news, the James Webb Space Telescope has been fully focused for just over a month now, and NASA announced this morning that the first official images will be released on July 12th. Quoting NASA, Deciding what Webb should look at first has been a project more than five years in the making. Early alignment imagery has already demonstrated the unprecedented sharpness of Webb's infrared view. However, these new images will be the first in full color and the first to showcase Webb's full science capabilities. The first images package of materials will highlight the science themes that inspired the mission and will be the focus of its work. The early universe, the evolution of galaxies through time, the life cycle of stars, and other worlds. End quote. And as Webb program scientist Eric Smith said, quote, As we near the end of preparing the observatory for science, we are on the precipice of an incredibly exciting period of discovery about our universe. The release of Webb's first full-color images will offer a unique moment for us all to stop 
stop and marvel at a view humanity has never seen before. These images will be the culmination of decades of dedication, talent, and dreams, but they will also be just the beginning. End quote. From the Las Vegas Review-Journal, Elvis might be leaving the buildings. And from the Associated Press, Las Vegas chapels of love that use Elvis Presley's likeness could find themselves becoming heartbreak hotels, end quote. I mean, at least journalists are having some fun with Elvis-themed jokes in all these articles today, but they better tread carefully, because Authentic Brands Group, who owns the name and image of Elvis Presley, seems to be on the warpath. Kent Ripley, owner of Elvis Weddings and an Elvis performer himself, says he hasn't run into this issue in 25 years in the business. And the issue? Quoting the Associated Press, in the cease and desist letter, the company said it will halt unauthorized use of Presley's name, likeness, voice image, and other elements of Elvis Presley's persona in advertisements, merchandise, and otherwise. The letter also said Elvis, Elvis Presley, and the King of Rock and Roll are protected trademarks. End quote. Authentic Brands Group is a licensing company that oversees the estates of many iconic individuals like Marilyn Monroe and Muhammad Ali, and its holdings include living icons like David Beckham and Shaquille O'Neal, a leading investor in the company, as well as straight-up brands like Reebok, Brooks Brothers, and Juicy Couture. The company has not yet responded to the media for comment. From the Las Vegas Review-Journal, quote, Issued and signed by an ABG attorney, the letter states that if an infringing chapel does not comply with the terms of the document within a week, the company's counsel would advise seeking legal action. That date would have been May 27th, or last Friday. As of Monday, no chapels have reported they have been contacted further by ABG. Those businesses targeted include chapels that specialize in or offer Elvis ceremonies or have the king's image as part of their name and logo. Viva Las Vegas slash Vegas Weddings, the Elvis Chapel, Elvis Weddings, and Las Vegas Elvis Chapel are among those confirmed to have been notified. Conceivably, a chapel and ABG could reach a financial licensing arrangement to continue business as usual, end quote. Now, the Associated Press points out that this is particularly poorly timed for chapels that were just starting to bounce back financially from the early days of the pandemic. And also says, quote, Las Vegas's wedding industry generates $2 billion a year, and officials say Elvis-themed weddings represent a significant number of the ceremonies performed. It might destroy a portion of our wedding industry. A number of people might lose their livelihood, said Clark County Clerk Lynn Goya. One chapel last weekend had its Elvis impersonator change into a leather jacket, jeans, and a fedora for a rock and roll-themed ceremony. End quote. That could be the future of Elvis-themed weddings, just rock and roll-themed. And to give you another idea of the scale of Elvis-themed weddings, even though they have yet to be hit with a cease and desist letter, Graceland Wedding Chapel performs about 6,400 Elvis weddings every year. Now, importantly, this order only applies to Elvis-themed chapels, not impersonators or shows, because, quoting again from the Associated Press, impersonating someone for live performances such as shows is considered an exception under Nevada's right of publicity law, according to Mark Trados, a local attorney who helped write the statute. End quote. And Trados told the Las Vegas Review-Journal, quote, 
An Elvis show is a performer essentially entertaining others by recreating that person on stage. The juxtaposition would be deciding to go to a mechanic as Elvis. Is he really an entertainer creating a story, or simply using the Elvis name to essentially draw a customer who can say, I had an Elvis guy fix my car? The question is, are you using it to attract attention versus storytelling? End quote. This sort of thing always gets into really nuanced areas like that. You know, especially considering the looming release of the Baz Luhrmann biopic of Elvis, starring Austin Butler in the titular role, which is sure to generate renewed enthusiasm in the musician, I can't help but be reminded of the crackdown from Warner Brothers on small businesses back around the release of the first two Fantastic Beasts films, especially as it was becoming clear that they were severely underperforming the company's expectations. You know, while Warner Brothers had initially sent cease and desist letters to all the teenagers running fan sites out of their bedrooms in the early 2000s, when they first acquired some of the IP for Harry Potter, they quickly backed off when J.K. Rowling intervened, beginning a long-standing sort of agreement that fans would be allowed to create whatever they wanted, and when they occasionally made modest profits from their art or themed events, Warner Brothers would turn a blind eye. And it went on like that for years, largely harmoniously. But when Warner Brothers acquired a larger share of the IP, rebranding it all as Wizarding World, tons of fan creators found cease and desist letters being sent to them for products that they'd sold for years without issue. And even more, Warner Brothers shut down tons of small-town, vaguely Potter-themed festivals around the country that had become beloved local institutions and significant contributors to the town's annual budgets. There were a whole bunch of festivals and small businesses that found themselves suddenly having to rebrand or shut down altogether. Of course, in recent years, any that managed to hold on to any Potter theming have largely dropped that of their own accord now to distance themselves from the author and studio. And you know, like with any Elvis-themed wedding, you may not get why anyone would actually be into it, but both really have had thriving communities, and for lots of small businesses out there, it is a huge part of their bottom line. And, you know, we could quibble about the line of fair use, but when you've built a business around a theme for years, decades, without issue, and then suddenly it's ripped away without an explanation for what changed, legally I suppose it is the property holder's right, but it's not exactly a good look. And however this ends up going, many chapel owners throughout Las Vegas are scrambling to scrape the actual Elvis name from their websites just to be on the safe side. And where it is, many are reporting being all shook up by the development. Well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.